There's three readings this morning from the book of James. If you've got the Red Church Bible, it's on page 1,213. And I'm starting in James chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Moving on to chapter 2, I'll read verses 1 to 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And the last reading's from chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. <clears throat> nice to see you. I can see it's one of those mornings where so many people are congregated at the back. I'm sort of quite tended to move the lectern and preach from halfway up, but, but I can't because it would throw off line the camera, so you're spared. And uh, a warm welcome to anyone who's watching online. We're very glad that you are. And there's room for you here when you want to return. Let's pray that the Lord would speak to us from the scriptures. Would you join me in praying? 
Father God, thank you for the scriptures. And we pray that you would speak to us through your word today. Come and soften our hearts. Come and help me as I speak. Lord Jesus, we want to be drawn closer to you and to live lives that reflect well on you and are Christ-like. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're continuing our look at the book of James. And this letter bristles with challenges. And not everyone who reads this book likes it. Uh, Martin Luther loathed it. He, he said it was a straw epistle. I think it's quite a rash thing to say that kind of thing about Scripture, because it is Scripture. And all scripture is God-breathed, not just the bits that we immediately like. And secondly, it is written by Jesus' brother. So I would have thought you wanted to hold judgment before you say that kind of thing. As we come to James's letter, it will really help us if we understand and see that it is a letter that is totally different from the other letters in the New Testament. And we need to approach it differently. In the same way, say, that you would approach a train timetable differently from a detective story. I don't think any of us here would pick up a detective story to find out of the next train that leaves Victoria to Gatwick. If you do, <laughs> you're not likely to get much help. Nor, I suspect, would many of us uh, read a train timetable for entertainment. If you do, you need some kind of help. When you come to the letter to James, it, it's very easy for us to approach it like one of Paul's letters, which makes you think, well, he's going to make some logical points, one, two, three, four. The first part of the letter is going to be all about doctrine. The second part is going to be all about behavior. James is not written like that. It's far more akin to the book of Proverbs, which is full of scattered wisdom in no particular order. And you have to read the book of Proverbs through many, many, many times before you spot the themes, and uh, it, it opens up for us better when you have spotted the themes. And it's the same with James's letter. One paragraph doesn't necessarily lead on to the next one, which tends to throw us. But if you keep reading the letter through over and over and over again, which I've done for you, the themes will leap out. And then when you put them together, you can see, oh, there, there are um, chunks of wisdom here arranged around topics. And that's what we're going to look at today, one of those topics. And I want to warn us, this is not easy reading. It's not easy reading because the topic we're looking at it makes us all feel defensive. And it's not easy reading because James is an in-your-face sort of guy. You get the impression that subtlety was not his point. He was not a diplomat. He uses a sledgehammer to make the point. And what he's going to talk to us about springs from his observation his observation of human behavior. 
And what's bothering him as he writes this letter is, church, we're meant to be the best community on earth where everyone is welcome, where everyone feels the love of God, where everyone sees a different way of living. But church, this is not what I see when I look around. And the particular bugbear he has is what wealth is doing to people and how people without wealth are suffering. And I would say, I call this talk toxic traits in God's family because there are three blocks of teaching, as we shall see, and I'll put it out there up front. They have a potential to make us uncomfortable or to make us Christ-like or both. And I suspect it's going to be both, that we will feel uncomfortable, but as we see the truth in them and we pray them into our midst, we will become more Christ-like, and that is what is meant to be happening. Now, it seems obvious to me, looking at this letter, as we shall see, James has got a keen eye for detail. He's very observant. And he's watching people, and he's noticing things. And there are three particular areas that he highlights that we're going to deal with. And the first one is this. How do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? And he says there is a tremendous impact on how we perceive ourselves depending on whether we enjoy material riches or whether we're suffering lack of material riches. So James chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, I'll just recap. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in... The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he'll pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat, as we're experiencing, and withers the plant. Its blossom fails and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. And what James is observing here is that the poor are prone to feeling inferior and the rich are prone to feeling superior and this doesn't wash in God's community. I think we might have invented a new kind of terminology recently <clears throat> for things like this, and it's the phrase unconscious bias. But what is being described here is as old as the hills. The poor who are disadvantaged in the world and the run of everyday life can easily suffer the same way within God's church community feeling marginalised and less worth, worthy than the rich. And they carry that sense of struggle into the church, which is wrong, because in God's sight, from his perspective, things look very different. God is close to the poor. A few years ago, a man called Bishop David Shepherd wrote a book called Bias to the Poor, in which I think he highlighted there is a theme consistent throughout scripture that God favours those who are poor and needless to say the book was trashed in cer certain circles 
I have little doubt that James is reaching this perspective through experience. Remember, he is Jesus' brother. Remember that Jesus' family were dirt poor. When Jesus was born, his parents go to the temple and they're unable to offer the required sacrifice. <clears throat> so they give the offering of a pigeon, which was what you gave if you literally had next to nothing, indicating that their material worth was meager. Notice that Paul says something very, very similar to the Corinthians. Brothers, remember what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. And isn't it one of the reasons that Jesus was rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees and so many people? He just didn't look the part, did he? He hadn't been to university. He didn't look impressive. He had no credentials apart from himself. And so James is saying the rich need to be on their guard in case they become too full of themselves. The rich, he who is rich, should take pride in his low position. Now, it's much easier to point out the problem than it is to provide a solution. It's so difficult, I think, to lay aside the recognition and the influence that you enjoy in the world simply because it goes with your status. And to put on a different set of clothes, as it were, in church. So here's how James cuts us down to size. Very, very simply. He says, don't you realize when you meet in God's presence, you meet as equals. Why? Because you all face the same destiny. We're all going to die one day. We have that in common, whether we're rich or poor. And it could happen to you just in the course of your working life tonight, this afternoon, at any time. And that should make you pretty humble. And secondly, because as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that your net worth is connected with his love for you, not with your material assets. Ultimately, what gives you security is that Jesus loves you, has died for you, has forgiven you, and is a friend of yours and has plans for you which you're trying to walk in. That's what binds us together. Is that what really works from week to week? It's challenging, isn't it? There's a story of two people that met up in church, an open church in the city, and uh, evidently they were there to pray. One of them looked extraordinarily prosperous and the other one looked extraordinarily poor. And the prosperous one, went and walked towards the poor one, got out a 20-pound note, gave it to the poor person who then left the church, and went back to prayer and said, OK, God, now, can I have your undivided attention? And that is exactly the attitude that won't wash. Riches give us the impression of stability, power, and permanence. But they're not really giving you that, or me that. A story that's told between two people talking about a mutual friend who recently died. Did they leave much? asked one. Yes, said the other. Everything. Well, wouldn't it be nice to think James is writing over 2,000 years ago and these attitudes have long since gone? But we just know it's not true, don't we? 
it's much harder to shake off these attitudes than we might like to think. Somehow, there's an attitude which has become ingrained, which is the poor have brought it on themselves and the rich have made it due to their talents. But the Bible doesn't say that. It's not difficult at all to find illustrations and examples of people who have experienced a collapse of their fortunes and a decline in their social standing that came with it, and the reverse. But James warns all of us, be careful how you view yourself. Don't get above yourself and don't get below yourself. And that's the first point. I can see you're loving it. This is one of these themes and one of these uh, topics and the writings of Scripture, which is, reminds me of what Mark Twain said when he said, it's not the bits of Scripture that I don't understand that bothers me, it's a bit that, that I do understand. Well, fair enough. But I think I see in Scripture that sometimes it's the bits that we find hardest, which are the bits that are going to make us most Christ-like. So, so don't sort of um, put your head under the duvet and take cover because this is like all of Scripture. This is for our benefit. A Christ-like life, a Christ-like life is the best life. So let's move to a second, a second area. If wealth and lack of it isn't to influence how we see ourselves, it also shouldn't cloud our judgment towards other people either, their wealth or lack of it. Don't let wealth or lack of it cloud your judgment. And James highlights the danger of favoritism or prejudice in how we view others. And he puts it out in chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, to recap. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. <clears throat> Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man, you say, stand over there, sit at the floor at my feet, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And it's uncannily close to Jesus' teaching when Jesus berates the people who take the best seats in the synagogue or the highest seat at the table. Not so very long ago, I was at a quite large Christian conference and we were in a, a tent with a number of people who had been invited just to mingle, I think, for some drinks and things. And someone came up to me and they said, watch that person over there. I can guarantee you within the next 30 minutes, they will have talked to the 10 most influential people in this tent. <clears throat> I found that problematic because I thought, well, if Jesus was here, he would definitely have spoken to the 10 least influential people in the tent. He didn't have those kind of eyes to play that kind of game. And in a rather horribly uncomfortable parallel, I remember hearing of a church leaders conference held in a rather well-known auditorium, not a million miles away from here at all, in which the church's major donors were given the best seats in the house, but the riffraff were given God knows where to sit. And that's the point, is that God does know where. And 
James's example is exactly contrary to that way of behaving, isn't it? And the church has often behaved contrary to James's preaching here. You know, it's not so long ago that in Anglican churches up and down the land, um, people owned pews, and you couldn't get a pew, a seat in a pew, unless you owned it. The lord and, and lady of a manor in the squirearchy had their seats. Money influences judgment, doesn't it? I, I heard a, <clears throat> what I found quite an amusing anecdote, a true anecdote, from a friend of mine who was visiting a, a friend of theirs way up north in the country, <clears throat> and really in rather a large um, congregation, a few hundred people, said they were surprised that the worship was led abominably by a pianist at the front who, who had seemed to have no sense of rhythm, um, no sense of which notes were the right notes or the wrong notes, and no kind of a voice. So they were puzzled because they kind of thought, you know, we've got a few hundred people here. Um, how can it be that the worship should be so lame? So <clears throat> sometime later on, they asked, you know, what, why is it that Fred, not his real name, leads the worship? And they said, well, <clears throat> you just have to understand, yeah, we do have a congregation of a few hundred, but Fred employs 98% of us. So which of us is going to tell him he shouldn't be playing at the keyboard? That's a true story. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, um, money talks. And James is saying, well, it, it, that's not the way it should be. It's, it's really not the way it should be. It dishonors the poor, and it goes completely against the grain of the kingdom. Listen, dear brothers, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? On a global scale, with a global perspective, this is also true. Do you know that over the last 10, 15 years has been the most amazing move of God in India and in parts of China uh, with something like revival going on. And an academic called Philip Jenkin wrote an article called The Future of Christianity, in which he set this out. It wasn't a piece of just anecdotal work. It was a serious piece of academic work. And he was interviewed afterwards, and he was asked the question, so why, if, it, if God's on the move, as you say he is, why don't we know about this? And this was his reply. The people in the West seem almost blissfully unaware of a rolling growth of Christianity in the global South. How have most people managed not to pay attention? There's a cynical remark that it's none the worse for maybe being true, which is that people in Europe and North America really aren't very interested in the poorest of the poor. If you're a poor person in Ethiopia or Uganda or Peru, you don't show up on the radar screen. And we're dealing here with countries that aren't even in the third world economically. We're dealing with the very, very poor. Islam has registered in the last 20 or 30 years only because we see it as politically threatening. Maybe some Christians somewhere would have to take hostages before anyone in the world really notices that they're there. And it is inspirational to see God at work. And so often, if you have the chance to travel abroad, as I have, it's been a privilege, literally, to spend some time 
amongst the very, very poor in Zambia and in Uganda. And I'm not saying it is axiomatic that this happens, but it's so in your face when you do meet Christians full of joy and hope in the Holy Spirit who materially are living on less than $1 a day. Well, it's all very challenging, isn't it? The third area and last is this, and it's slightly contrasting in chapter 5. Beware of a power, says James, that comes with wealth. Beware and wary of it. And he comes down incredibly hard on those who use their riches or power to exploit others. And commentators think actually he's probably writing mostly to non-believers at this point. But I'll read the passage. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of a misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ear of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself in the day of slaughter, and you've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not even opposing you. And what he's describing here are a number of things. Hoarding wealth and preferring to, to see it wither rather than using it to bless others. This rather curious line, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes, and what they were doing is they were storing extravagant clothes uh, as potential for harvesting riches. Um, they had investments, investments is one way of putting it. And, uh, and that was rotting, literally rotting. Now, here again, it's incredibly like what James's brother Jesus has told us. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust are destroying where thieves can break in and steal, but store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust doesn't destroy. You had an opportunity, said James, to change things for good, but you blew it. You chose not to. Secondly, he said, you exploited others, failing to pay people properly, verse 4. The wages you failed to pay people cry out to the Lord. And thirdly, you in, indulged in excess the gap between the haves and the haves not was not, uh, you just can't justify it, the luxury that you lived in. And this is a horrible attribute that riches have, a tendency to blind us to the predicament that others are in. And Jesus told a whole parable about that in Luke chapter 16. Well, <clears throat> it hasn't been easy, has it? all these passages, it's so easy to take a defensive line and feel got at. So why is James pointing out these things so bluntly? As I just conclude very briefly, why? Well, he's probably having to speak bluntly to get through to us. Sometimes, unless we hear it absolutely straight, we just don't pick it up. And that's why I think he's laboring these points over and over and over again. But secondly, he's not doing it to make us feel grotty. He's doing it because we, the family of God, are the hope of the world, or we should be. And we should be different to the world. 
And he's longing for a day when people would walk into God's new community and feel welcome and feel valued and feel that they're important and that God values them and has a part to play for them, irrespective of whether they're prosperous or not. The most valuable treasure we have is Jesus Christ. We know this in our heads. We experience it in our hearts. We have to translate it to how we live it out with the help of his spirit. And I'm thankful, though I'm challenged by passages like this, I'm grateful for them because they, they act, don't they, as a plumb line of truth for us. It's not my intention this morning to have just whacked you hard over the head. <laughs> That's not the point. It's to say, look, this is the gold standard, the truth standard that Jesus will enable us to live with his help. And we can help one another towards it. And it's important that we do so that the kingdom of God comes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that in a moment we'll be celebrating that you laid down your life for us. You became poor for us. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't shy away from your message to us today, but we would grow into it. We pray, Lord, not that we would be condemned, but that we be convicted. And Holy Spirit, you'd have a chance to make us more Christ-like, which we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.